Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Bruce. I played in a pickup hockey game last night. Oh, awesome. Had a great amount of fun. Mm-hmm. Pick up, pick up hockey is always way better than league hockey. Like it is just, you know, you're just, you're not competing, you're playing mm-hmm. and there's a difference between the two. And I, I just like to play hockey. I don't, I don't, I'm not really into the competition. I used to want to play hockey. Who said that? Rod, Rod Phillips, that was Rod Phillips uh, uh, paraphrasing every a Swede and Finn that came over during the WHA years. That was his. Standard quote. I used to want to play hockey. Why did they say that? <laughs> uh, I guess it was, why did you want to come and play in Canada, you know, or in North America? And during, this uh-huh. was during the very beginning of the Swedish movement, yeah. you know, with the Jets and uh, and uh, the, uh, well, WHA generally. But it was just kind of a standing joke with, uh, with Rod and Ken Brown, was it? Here's one for you, Bruce. Who was the first European-born and trained player who ever played for the Edmonton Oilers? And I'm—I don't know the answer, so I'm—I'm I'm not saying it's you have Weeding because didn't Whitey Whiting play in North America? Didn't he grow up? I believe yeah. so. Yeah. So who is ha- the first? He has a Swedish name, but uh, who's your uh, guess on the first European player? It's a hard one, isn't it? Do they have any? Well, I'm the thinking w- of Risto Silton, and you know, I mean, late WHA. It, it might have been Silton, right? Did they, maybe they had someone on a cup of coffee kind of thing for a few games. What do you think? But I can't yeah, think. I think it's a good question, is what I think. Silton was my favorite Oiler for a while there. Mm-hmm. I just loved Risto Silton's game. He never, he had one pretty good offensive season, but. Um, oh. 53 that points got moved out before the Oilers became a really good team. I wonder if I wonder if he could have hung in there on those really good Oilers teams. Uh, well, or, he got traded for Ken Linsman, so it wasn't like they gave him away and just got rid of him. You know, they got they got a good return for him, and then they later traded Ken Linsman for Mike Krushelniski. Uh So again, they got you know a legit NHL sort of trade tree going at least until they they had to move Krushelniski. Los Angeles. That's where the trade tree kind of falls apart. But they got uh, they got value for Risto. Let's put it that way. Brings me back to one of my old pet peeves. Was say there would play Al Hamilton at the end of his career was a struggling struggle, and he often would put Hamilton in the lineup and not instead of Silton. And then those were one of my early rants. Bruce is an Oilers mm-hmm. fan. I would rant about that a lot. Bruce, today we are going to be ranting about a number of topics. We're going to talk about um, Edmonton as a hub city, uh, Caleb Jones uh, talking about having COVID-19, talk about some analysis of the Chicago Blackhawks from NHL stats expert Mike Kelly, we'll talk about McDavid and how he's going to do in the playoffs this year, and then we're going to go through some prospects um, who are near the top or at the top of our list in our prospect series, which we're coming close to... Coming close to wrapping up, Bruce. Um, so Edmonton only has we're, we're we're getting down to crunch time, and Edmonton only has 182 active cases right now. It was going up for a while. I think it's kind of leveled off the rise. Um, 
I guess some some ex, there was some expectation that the numbers would go up as we open up our our city a bit more. But we're not seeing the rapid rise here in Edmonton that we've seen in the United States. And um, it looks it's looking pretty good. You know, the the only concern that I have heading into this is, and it's not really that big a concern, but I I haven't liked the NHL's new rules on COVID nineteen. Um, like I can understand trying to keep maybe individual players' names out of it still. I don't really think there's any reason. I don't think there's any stigma around getting this disease at this point. I don't know why it's kept secret, but uh, I, and I think it leads to a lot of weirdness and confusion and stilted conversations. But the, what I don't like is I don't even know how many people in the NHL, maybe I'm just not paying enough attention, but how many players coming in at Edmonton even have COVID? Do we even know that? I, I think they need to make that clear right. and do it like the, the onus is on them to be completely forthcoming with that kind of number. Maybe I'm wrong. You can fact check me on this. Maybe they are. Maybe we do know right now how many players from the 12 teams coming here have it. But I don't remember seeing that number. Have you seen it, Bruce? I've only seen a number positive tests league wide. So you can sort of assume half would be in each conference. But that's, you know, it's only an assumption. And. Uh, I'm not sure how much, um, you know, difference it would make, you know, if half is plus two or minus four or whatever, you're still, you know, talk, you're probably in the in the ballpark with that. But uh, as long as they're given the right numbers and as long as they're doing the right things with the people who do test positive, then that's, the, you know, that's, that's going to be the litmus test. That's a good point. And, and uh, like I have a lot of confidence in Dr. Hinshaw, who's been deeply involved in all of the preparations for the NHL. So, um, you know, that's that's somewhat reassuring. Did we? I'm just going to Google latest NHL numbers for COVID-19. Uh, let's see, latest NHL. Do we, when's your, I mean, I remember a couple of weeks ago we heard about, you know, so many positive tests. Right. Yeah, well, there was a, there was a spate of testing, of course, done when training camps were first opening up, so... So when I Google that, the latest stories I'm getting are all July 2nd. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, 26 players. Yeah, that's the number I remember from June 29th. So, yeah, I don't think there's been a number since then. And it's now we've now they're all back at training camp. Mm -hmm. So what's the number, NHL? That's my question. And maybe there's I'm not trying to make a big deal out of this. I'm just saying, Mm -hmm. like, what is the number? Let's let's hear it. And there's an onus on you, NHL, to tell us how many people who have tested positive you know, or active cases are coming in if there's going to be, I don't know if there's going to be active cases coming in if they just stay home with those guys and come in later. I don't know how that's going to work. But that's the kind of thing that the onus is on the NHL to, to tell us, I think. Because mm-hmm. people in Edmonton want to know that and I think have a right to know that. You know, I really did like the way Caleb Jones handled his positive test. Um, mm-hmm. Oh. He, he he was just very forthright in saying, you know, he, he got this a couple of weeks ago when he was tested. When he came to Edmonton, he was tested. He had no idea that he had it um, and he didn't have, ever have any major symptoms. But I think that's the way, um, you know, if players have it, they should they speak freely about having it. It's not a big deal. And it, it sh- kind of shuts down all the rumor mongering, I think mm-hmm. she kind of shuts down all the, the nasty chatter, blah, 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 about s- someone's politics or someone's whatever they're this or that about them. Just, just, he had it, it's done, move on. It's just, it's just, 
it's not a big deal. And you make it a bigger deal when you keep it secret. So he went through the 14 days and now he's been cleared and he was nearing the end of that when he was sort of had limited access and now he's reached the end of it and it's, and it's cleared. And he, you know, the, the afflicted party telling us himself as to what happens and where he stands and how he feels and so on. Um, I, I agree that's sort of the high road and we've seen that from really from the beginning, you know, various celebrities and so on sort of releasing the information saying, you know, I tested positive or, you know, Tom Hanks being an early example and Rita Wilson where they said we tested positive and, and you know, we and sort of kept people abreast of what's going on. Uh, and otherwise, I mean, the NHL's policy of, you know, of at least I think this is their policy of telling you numbers but not giving you specifics as to who and so on and kind of being a little bit uh, closed-mouthed about why people are out to this unfit-to-play um, sort of umbrella uh, reason for why people aren't available without really telling you anything. Um, it's very different than that one situation we had where Austin Matthews was outed without his own. I mean, he subsequently has talked about it and good on him for sort of clarifying things. But that was, to me, a case of how things really shouldn't be done. But uh, uh, ideally, you get the players themselves and there should be no stigma. I mean, people get it. And it's, you know, I mean, maybe they did something wrong when they got it. You know, they went to a party or something. But I mean, you don't necessarily get those details, but, the you know, they it's usually follow. family. It's usually family gatherings, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we know. Awesome. It's usually big, at least at Edmonton. It's been huge family gatherings that, that people get it. So if someone went to a family gathering and got sick, oh. like, oh, how horrible is that? You know, be careful at your family mm -hmm. gatherings. That said, because that is the, <laughs> that is the main way people get it. You know, sharing food at a family gathering apparently is is the number one vector right now in in our part of the world, at least. Yeah. Uh, you know, so this whole thing is playing out in Chicago, Bruce, because Corey Crawford mm -hmm. is out and no one knows why. Right. They're all guessing like it's they, they're having this like weird guessing game in Chicago because no one knows what's up with this mm -hmm. player. What we do know is he did not train with the team during was it phase one. Are we now in phase two? OK, is that no, it? We're in phase three now. OK, and during phase two, when the players returned to their teams, he mm -hmm. didn't return. He wasn't there and he didn't practice and he's there now we're in phase three and we're a, a, almost a week into phase three and he's nowhere to be seen. And in Chicago, there, there's this weird conversation, of course, because because like, on Chicago Blackhawks Twitter, which is pretty active, um, mm -hmm. there's lots of fans who don't think he's any good anymore. Who are really, who are really, it's so funny, Bruce. It is so funny. There's this huge, there's this huge debate. Is one of the the two debates around Corey Crawford is what's going on with him? Will he be back? And well, are we better off without him anyway? And there's a there's a there's a sizable faction of fans in Chicago who actually believe that the team might be better off without Corey Crawford coming into the playoffs. So um, Mike Kelly, who is one of the leading NHL analytics experts, and you know, and and really on the cutting edge, yeah. because he's using you know. All of the, I, I think it's safe to say that almost like the people who are really serious about analytics, they're digging into all kinds of things that aren't publicly available um, information. And they're using, they use video analysis, like they use computer video analysis. I don't know how it all works, but they, they, they dig down into 
the individual what are what's the individual doing on the ice you know what's he creating what's what mistakes is he making and with goalies they're looking at okay what really is they're not just looking at how many shots he faces what is the real shot quality of the shots that he's facing like are these one time like does he how many one-timer shots how many breakaways does he face how many cross seam passes leading to a one-timer shot does he face how many you know, screenshot does he face? And when they, when Mike Kelly was looking at that and looking at the Chicago Blackhawks, he, he came to two solid conclusions. A, Corey Crawford is still a top 10 goalie in the NHL right now. And without Corey Crawford, this team, the Chicago Blackhawks, is, as Mike Kelly puts it, have virtually no chance against the Edmonton Oilers without Corey Crawford. And when I heard that, I got really, really worried because mm-hmm. that pushed all of my buttons as an Oilers fan about us, this team in recent years, going into games that they should win, that they, you know, where the other team should have virtually no chance and the Oilers losing it. Before we get into that, though, I'm just going to read you some of <laughs> Crawford's comments, okay? So we can, yep. we, can, we can go off that. Okay. Kelly's comments? Excuse me. Kelly's comments. Thanks, yep. Bruce. He said, quote, if Corey Crawford does go, and he plays at his best, and I think he was really good this year. I think he was a top 10 goalie this year. Then I think the the Hawks have a chance to be competitive in the series. So now we remove him from the equation. And you are left with Malcolm Subban, who I think of goalies in the NHL as probably a bottom five goalie. And then you start going to guys who aren't in the NHL. The Blackhawks have virtually no chance without Corey Crawford. Crawford was the one, and Leonard when he was there, obviously, that was the redeeming quality to allow this team to be competitive. They're a good offensive team. They can score. You guys know that. I don't have to, I I don't evaluate any facet of the game by one thing. I don't look at, oh, your differential here or your shot total here means this. There's more than goes into it than that for me. But I can say unequivocally that the Blackhawks are the worst defensive team in the National Hockey League this year in terms of what they allow, where they allow it, and how they allow it. Then he talks about their defense and he says, quote, There's nothing to me intimidating about playing against that blue line in Chicago's end. They're not going to push you off the puck. They're not going to be physical on you as a whole. I think they're a light team to play against in that sense. I don't have, I don't think that other teams come in worried about having space in the offensive zone or winning battles. Teams are able to funnel pucks into the quality scoring areas of the ice easier against Chicago than anybody else. Create these chances, <laughs> go across the dots, create these lateral plays, and when you end up with. Ex- with expected goals, which is basically grade A chances for traditional hockey fans, they give up a ton. What do you think, Bruce? Well, I think grade A chances has gone from sort of our little code to uh, traditional hockey analysis now. That's that, that's progress. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, expected goals are sort of, they're a derivative of that. I mean, you don't of expect grade all A grade A chances to go in the net. You expect but a percentage of them. And... Uh, there, uh, uh, it is a you know it's another way of measuring just the quality of the shot. It doesn't necessarily measure the, shot, the quality of the shooter, as you know. I mean, you you want to have yes. 
Alex Ovechkin or Patrick Laine or Leon Dreisaitl taking that shot as opposed to... Uh, uh, Josh Archibald. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a long list of guys you don't <laughs> want taking the shot, but uh, David they, Staples, yeah. Bruce McCurdy, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, but as for um, uh, as for Crawford, um, I mean, of the of the list of goalies who played 35 plus games this year, which is basically half of you know most teams played around 70 games, and Crawford and Mikko Koskinen were tied for sixth in the. Uh, among those goalies, uh, with a 9.17 save percentage this year. That's 30 goalies that play basically one per team that played 35 uh, games. Uh, and they were t- both tied for sixth at 9.17. And uh, uh, Koskinen, that, that was very good for Crawford, probably even better because he was playing be- behind a notably suspect defense. And of course, Chicago is really painting themselves into a corner, having traded Robin Leonard. And if there's any issues with Corey Crawford, well, uh, they're already a team that may be in that category that says, well, if you lose the play-in round, you have a one in eight chance at getting Alexis Lafreniere. And if you win the play-in round, you have a one in 16 chance of winning the Stanley Cup, assuming you're as good as the other teams, which clearly they are not that uh, uh, a loss in the play-in round is not in the worst interest of Chicago Blackhawks in the long term. Let's put it that way. So some, something, uh, you know, something as central as, uh, as losing their goalie is catastrophic on the one level, and on the other level, it kind of clarifies things, you know. I, um, when I was thinking, when he was describing the defense, Bruce, and you might have had the same experience, I totally flashed back to the Oilers. Oh of 2009 to 2015. He was he was describing to AT exactly what was wrong with the Edmonton Oilers mm-hmm. in that era. Just all of these ineffectual defensemen who could not stop the cycle if their hockey careers depended on it, which it did. And they couldn't stop the cycle. They just the teams would just come in and smother us and you know get all of these great chances in the end. And, you know, I don't remember when I was watching the Hawks this year, I think beat the Oilers two, two games out of three. I don't remember seeing that, feeling that. But if that's if that's the case um, with Chicago Blackhawks, I mean, that's just just imagine, I mean, the, the dynamite line going in there and and putting, you know, with the way those guys can play hockey um, and having that kind of defense against them it, it 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 on the again on the one level it's encouraging on the other level the all of everything kelly sked, said just scared the hell out of me because it was the up until that moment i was thinking you know this i, I think the orders are a quite a bit better team but you know and and again would win like if they played four times they would win three out of the four times that they played but when kelly started to talk this way I just i just it just felt like a jinx on the orders in that moment i was just like oh god this is the last thing i want to hear because it's so fraught. Anything can happen in such a short series. I mean, Patrick Kane could get hot. The Oilers goalies could get weak, get, you know, have some bad games. The puck could bounce the wrong way. And I just, it just brought, and the Oilers have had a historic, I don't know, like you'd have to go actually go over this, but it just seems to me there's been so many times when they've come into games against weak teams that we should be beating with the backup goalie in net where the Oilers lose. 
Now, maybe the, maybe statistically that's not even borne out by what actually happened. Well, how that's many how games, it feels. How many games in the last 15 years have the Oilers been favored, period? Maybe 20%. You know, I mean, they've, they've been in the lower end of the league. That, that sort of assuming that they should beat anyone is uh, almost a foreign concept. But, I mean, there are, there are certainly there are, there are games. But uh, I think some of that, I mean, any given Sunday, as they say in the NFL, uh, and hockey is much more fraught to, uh, you know, bounces and, and uh randomness and, and and luck deciding the outcome of this game or not this is where the, the the length of the series should help you determine who the better team is uh, over the long haul but there you know there's a lot of randomness in determining the outcome of any individual game i mean you and i have talked in some of our podcasts you know about two two great plays two blunders and two two bounces decide the uh, game every game deciding a game yeah and yeah so the bounces are a big part of that. In fact, I'd almost be prepared to put them first sometimes. <laughs> uh, the game is, you know, one of the frustrating things about the game and uh, trying to analyze the game is the randomness factor. It is a, a very high high in hockey more than other sports, I would say. But, Except for soccer, which yeah. is the most random of all sports and is often decided by well, one call by the, best, the ref. Why do the best teams always win then? They do tend yeah. to, don't they, Bruce? <laughs> they, do. they do tend to. They, even in soccer, they tend to. Oh, Manchester United, they're playing in the... the I, right now, I think, against Chelsea. I don't oh, know if that yeah. game's on TV. Um, yeah, I don't know why I cheer for Manchester. I think I've described this before. Like, when the Oilers were losing, I was trying to pick a team that would win because it's just too hard to root for teams that are always losing. So I wasn't like a Burnley fan or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, no slight on Burnley, which I'm sure tries their hardest. Okay, Bruce McDavid, Connor McDavid. Um, one of the reasons I'm, I'm bullish on the owners this year uh, is I just think Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl are in the absolute prime of their careers as two-way players right now. These guys are ready, ready to win, mm-hmm. and they're in that. And, and deter, like I just, I just think uh, I do think that they're ready to, you know, to do, go the full Michael Jordan with their teammates and kind of will the whole group forward, will themselves forward, will the group forward. And the owners are going to have that going for them. And I, I contrast that. I wrote a post this week where I looked at McDavid in 2017, and I don't think he was there yet as a player. He wasn't quite ready to be that guy in the playoffs, the refuse-to-lose guy. And, I, I, you know, we, didn't, we wrote about it at the time. I certainly did, and I think others did. I think you did. It, the 27, he got nine points in 13 games, McDavid did. And I think that stat really sums up his playoffs. That's about McDavid is a 15 point in 13 games guy. And in those playoffs, he was a nine point in 13 games guy. And it was a big reason the orders were not able to advance in the playoffs because, because of that. And I, I don't think that's going to happen again this year. What's your take on, on then and now with McDavid? Well, he's three years more mature and, you know, I mean, he was a great player at 20, don't get me wrong, but uh, he's... Yeah. Uh, MVP, he, I think. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, I, he's just, he's he's that much more mature, he's that, you know, I think the team is more mature, and certainly the team that was built around him and them this year has uh, is uh, that much more mature, that they only have, you know, a handful of guys 
really under 25, where McDavid is, uh, what, the fourth youngest player on the team still, but he's a five-year pro now. So there's no reason to to uh, uh, think he's going to have any kind of deer-in-the-headlights moment in the, in the second bash of the playoffs, and the same goes for Leon. And, I mean, they're the drivers of, of the bus. So it's... Um, uh, they're, I think, at the beginnings of their true primes, and you know, I think, but we're entering that stage where, where we can expect more than individual success for those guys. We can expect team success, and where you know, the, the measure of, of their performance is, winning. And, I don't know, does Chicago have a Ryan Kessler or Mark Edwards Vlasic on the roster? They don't. They clearly don't have a Vlasic, who at that time, um, like, let's give this guy full credit at that time. He was a fantastic defensive defenseman oh, yeah. who legally, legally was able to uh, slow down Connor McDavid considerably. Um, what, what, what a hockey player he was in, in that moment in his career. Probably the prime of his career right then. Kessler, of course, was a dirty, no good um, weasel. Weasel. Uh, thank you, Bruce. Uh, who was who was um, you know he, he the refs uh, didn't uh, call the necessary amount of fouls. You know they were enablers of his of of all those negative aspects of his game. It was a it was a sham, a crock, and a discredit to the NHL that they allowed that to go on in the playoffs that year. And he essentially mugged McDavid out of that series. So that's what I have now, to say I about call, that. I wouldn't call Kessler no good. He was he was very good. He was good. good. He was he very did, good. But, but he he was um, uh, he he wasn't bound by the rules of the game or any kind of sense of fair play. Let's put it that way. I, I still have the vision in my head that time they dropped the puck and he grabbed McDavid under the thigh and he lifted his leg up over his head and held him there for about four seconds and the referees were busy going. That didn't happen. I mean, it was this blatant, uh, I mean, if there's such a thing as five minutes for holding, that was it, you know, <laughs> I didn't call it. I had bad feelings about that series, well, even before then, but from that moment, they kind of crystallized. They are not going to call this stuff, right? Kessler it, is, it was good, you're right, yeah. Yeah, as, as, I mean, as weasel hockey players go, I mean, he could play, but uh, <clears throat> he was not an easy player to like. What an embarrassment for the NHL that they allowed that to happen. What a Bush League that they allowed that to happen. You know, to- totally Bush League that they allow their greatest players to be thwarted in that way. And if that happens this year, it'll be an embarrassing again for the NHL. Oh. Totally Bush League uh, in the Fine. hands of the biggest Neanderthal fa- faction of the NHL that, that, you know, thinks that's hockey. So um, let's hope the NHL doesn't allow that. Are you worried about the refs here in Edmonton at all, Bruce? Well, I'm always worried about the refs, but it's uh, somebody. I, somebody asked me recently. Uh, uh, I was on the uh, Handkerchief Dynasty podcast, and they asked me if the refing was, you know, about the refing. They're trying to sort of prod me on, and I was sort of saying, well, the refing's been a problem every year since 1963 that I've been watching. You know, <laughs> in some senses, it hasn't changed a whole lot. It's a very difficult game to officiate, and some of the some of the old boy 200 hockey men. Uh, rationales that drive it but you know it's got to be a tough mean game you know we can't give anything for free so uh, let's allow you know blocking tackling 
mugging and thugging. You know, I mean, I, I think there's a better balance, and I've always thought there's a better balance I could find, and a little bit of consistency. That's you know, that's the other sort of constant bugaboo that you can't really count on uh, uh, consistent officiating. But boy, oh boy, you know that. You got to the playoffs. Let's showcase the game and the players. And to me, I'd rather see Connor McDavid skating with the puck and see Ryan Kessler hog tying him in a corner somewhere. You know, maybe that's just me. And Patrick Kane skating with the puck. Oh yeah, know? sure. And Jonathan fantastic Taves, player. Yeah, Jonathan Taves playing hockey the way he like all of these players. Let's see them play hockey and let's see who wins the game. Um, Bruce, we've been writing about the prospects mm. and, um, you know, we're right at the top of the list here. Getting there. So we're pretty much, we got uh, two more guys, two guys to go. Left. And they are, the, the two guys left. Let's, I think we can do our big reveal now, our Philip Broberg and uh, Evan Bouchard. I just don't say what order, David, but yeah, the last two, last two first round draft choices are the two <clears throat> top prospects, which shouldn't be a surprise and really it isn't. And and they're they're two contrasting players, aren't they? They're, mm-hmm. they're very different hockey players, who both have the have the chance, I think, to be very very good NHL defensemen. Certainly top four NHL defensemen, possibly better than that, possibly good enough to play like top pairing. Uh, certainly mm-hmm. certainly Bro- Bouchard has the chance to be an outstanding power player, and um, but let's before we get into those two guys, you recently wrote about. Lavoie, Bruce, what's your, you know, what's your take on this guy and his potential, Raphael Lavoie? Well, <clears throat> lots to like about his potential. And, you know, he bring, he checks a lot of boxes. Uh, he's um, uh, he's a big guy. And, I mean, that's not the be-all and end-all, but it's it's you want to have some size on your team and some size on your skill lines. Uh, he's a right shot, which is at, at – uh, Meshes nicely with all the left-handed playmakers that the Oilers have. Uh, he's a volume shooter, which is kind of a different uh, uh, for the Oilers' general style. Like I mean, he had 310 shots this year, Lavoie did in 55 games. Like that's almost six shots a game over in the in the queue. And uh, now, obviously, as he moves up in class, those numbers will come down. But it. it tells you that his propensity is to shoot first but he's not just only a shooter right I mean he, he's got decent assist totals he's capable of making a play he's capable of uh, grinding it out he's got a lot of pieces and he's a project under construction from from what I've seen of the guy is that if all those pieces come together he'll turn into a pretty fine NHLer but <clears throat> it's going to take a year or two of uh, of uh additional training at the professional level. I mean, in his credit, he improved each and every year in the, in the Quebec League. He went from 68 games to 62 to 55, and despite the drop in games played, each year he improved in both goals and points by a significant number. So his per-game totals ramped up and up, and this year he was basically a one-and-a-half point-a-game producer. And the Q, those are uh, pretty nice numbers. And now, uh, you know, he's ready to move on. He's played his three and a half years of uh, major junior. Time for the next challenge. And the next challenge, all things being equal, if they assume they get the season going, Bakersfield is the uh, logical place. And whether he sort of 
takes it by storm and just takes you know a spot in the top six in the first power play unit i'm not so sure but i do know that he's ready to move on to pro and it might take him a half a year or more to you know make the adjustment and start being a productive player there but it's it's time for that next challenge and and uh, he's a, he's a uh, a diamond in the rough so he's, his potential is somewhere between kind of like james neal to alexander Giroux, kind of like <laughs> Kind of in there somewhere we'll find him as a pro hockey player, probably. Although Alexander Giroux was no slump, slouch as a minor hockey league right. or AHL level scorer. He was right. a no, very good. fantastic scorer. He just couldn't translate it to the NHL. So, but that's the kind of style, the James Neal kind of power forward, not super fast, but big, goes to the net, lots of shots on that, nose for the net, and can make a play in the offensive zone. So let's yeah. well, make sure you... Big boy, and he's faster than he looks too. Like he looks a little, little clumsy. He's got a little bit of funky stride, but he also has, according to people who've observed him, the ability to separate uh, when he's, you know, skating with the puck, which is a, you know, a real nice, uh, obviously, attribute to have. So the other player is Tyler Benson, and of course, we we saw Tyler Benson in the NHL, and um, I really liked what I saw, honestly, mm-hmm. I, when when he. Uh, Got sent down. I was thinking, no, he didn't necessarily earn getting sent down. He could have, he could have hung in here. This this guy can. He he made some nice passing plays. He was good on the boards. He didn't give up much defensively. He 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 didn't hurt his team when he was on the ice, and he kind of he chipped in. So um, it'll be interesting to see with Tyler Benson what kind of player he becomes. He's never been a. He's put up some points consistently at the AHL level, but he he hasn't scored a lot. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think he, but I think he could be a third line winger. Like I think he could be a checking winger. Um, cause he, cause I think he's a very smart and diligent hockey player who could figure out, okay, I'm going to be making my bread and butter is going to be hanging in there. Um, on a third line where I, you know, I get my 30 to 40 points a year, but I don't give up anything defensively. And I really am dogged in that regard. And I don't think that's an unrealistic expectation for him. I think hoping for more than that might be hoping for a bit too much. Um, but he, he's got NHL level skill and I think he's got NHL level thinking the game, um, in terms of defensive play and, and moving the puck on the attack. So we'll see what happens with him. I, I, am still quite positive about him as a prospect. Yeah. I think his cup of coffee, uh, was, what ended it was players coming back. Yeah. Like I think most of the games that he played was during casting suspension, for example. And I mean, once casting suspension was over, obviously he was going to get back in the lineup. So Benson kind of, you know, his opportunity came when there was a shortage of roster players. So he got a few games. One guy started filtering back in the lineup. He got sent out. And in the meantime, he got those valuable sort of first exposure to NHL, uh, which uh, it's going to, you know, it's going to bode well for him the next time around. He, he At this point, this summer, he has a better understanding of the challenge ahead of him than he would have last summer. And really, David, we saw that with all three of the uh, recalls or the guys who made the Edmonton Oilers this year from the minor league system uh, in uh, Ethan Bear, Caleb Jones and Kyler Yamamoto. Where each of those guys had had a, a cup of coffee or more than one cup of coffee in past years, Yamamoto had two different 
uh, goes at it. And those guys, I think, were way better off and way more prepared for the challenge the second time around. And I think we can expect to see the same thing from uh, not only Tyler Benson, but, uh, you know, a guy like William Lagesson, for instance. He got his first cup of tea in the NHL, and now he's got, uh, uh, you know, he's he's sort of got a baseline and and sort of his own personal awareness of, you know, how tough it is out there and, and what do I bring that will work and what do I need to work on? And so that that's, you know, an invaluable part of the process. All right, let's talk about the two defensemen now, Bruce. And it's, it's kind of interesting because Broberg has come into camp and in terms of buzz around a hockey player right now, it's kind of Broberg-a-mania. Like there's constant little... Um, uh, apparently he had two end-to-end rushes in a scrimmage uh, yesterday, and he's he's wowing people. We saw this aspect of his game last year at the Summer Showcase where he put on an absolute show. Now, he's kind of a controversial draft pick uh, for yep. the Oilers. I think it was eighth or – was it eighth overall? Eighth overall, and Trevor Zegras went ninth, and that was a, sort yeah. of the, the, the contrast player that kind of got, became the focal guy of who they could have taken. Instead and there was also over, but there's a few of them. Cole, Cole Caulfield, Cole, yeah, Cole Caulfield. There was a, so there was a, and there was another American that's more forgotten Matthew now. Matthew Boldy, that's right. Who who hasn't didn't have that great season in uh, first year of college hockey, whereas Zegras and Caulfield did. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know. I I I was worried about the Broberg pick. Uh, no expert at all. I don't watch these players on. I don't watch them enough to have an opinion. Um, any kind of sound opinion when they're drafted. So, I I mean, I don't, yay or nay, I can't say at that moment. But right. after seeing him in the showcase last last year, I was mighty reassured, Bruce, mm-hmm. um, that this is a player who is just extremely toolsy. Like, he's big, mm-hmm. <laughs> he's really big, fast. super fast. He is so fast. And he can carry the puck. He can move the puck. Mm-hmm. Now, is he a smart defensive player? Is he a smart offensive player? What is his hockey IQ? I right. can't tell you about that, but I can tell you that his coach on mm-hmm. his Swedish team, who's been in the Swedish hockey scene for 40 years, was comparing him to the very best players he's ever seen coming mm-hmm. out of that Swedish hockey system and saying that Broberg's right up there with the very best. So that was encouraging as well. Um, you usually don't say that about, a dumb hockey player, like a player with a low hockey IQ who, who doesn't make good passes and defend well. Mm-hmm. Uh, his coach thought a lot of him. So I don't really know what to say still about him. We'll see how it goes. But he, he seems like a player, like kind of a a non-conforming player, like Darnell Nurse. Uh, I think, Darnell Nurse is a comp for me, too. I think, to I think those kind of players confound a certain type of hockey fan, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say. And mm-hmm. they... they, they these are hockey fans um, who really want their defensemen to be puck passers. And, you know, and that there's nothing wrong with that kind of defenseman. Ethan Bear is that kind of defenseman, and he's fabulous. Like, you don't expect Ethan Bear to rush the puck up the ice. But rushing the puck up the ice can be a hell of a hockey play as well. And Darnell Nurse shows that. Darnell Nurse, I think, is consistently underrated by a faction of Edmonton hockey fans who don't like his style of play, even though he is really effective. So... Roberts could be in the same camp. Hundred percent, yeah. Nurse, nurse is uh, uh, for all that there. He has uh, his detractors about his offensive ability. Uh, 
Um, he's the only Oilers defenseman to exceed 20 even strength points in the last three years, needed in all three years, and with at least 26 points in each of the years. Like he's, there's separation between him and the whole rest of the decor in terms of offensive productivity. And, and I'll grant you that it's not sort of your traditional uh, pass first or first pass uh, productivity, but uh, he get you know he gets up into the play and he makes stuff happen, and good things uh, often result from that. And that's kind of the style of player I've seen in my viewings of Broberg, which included uh, three live games at the Halinka uh, uh, Gretzky tournament uh, two Augusts ago now, before you know at the beginning of his draft year. And he made a lot of noise here in Edmonton during that tournament. So when the Oilers did draft him, it's not like, well, who's that guy? Where'd he come from? It was, he's a, you know, a known commodity in the thing. Some people thought he went too high. Some experts thought he went too high. Basically, he went the same place where Darnell Nurse went in uh, 2013, seventh overall. Broberg went eighth. So, you know, in second tier of his own draft class. Uh, but... Uh, He's, I mean, the other comp for him, obviously, is Oscar Kleffbaum, who was a first-round draft pick from Oilers out of Sweden in 2011. And in uh, Kleffbaum's case, they left him in Sweden for two years and then brought him over and worked him in through the minor league system. It was basically halfway through his second North American season that he became a, a full-time NHLer. And that's sort of a reasonable timeline for Broberg. But what I'm hearing out of camp this week is he's pushing the envelope on that and raising expectations a little bit. So that's great. I think it's good too, although I would prefer that he stays in, uh, he's in, is he in Sheleftia? Uh, yeah, no. no, he moved on to. Uh, Who's he played uh, for? Yeah, Bert no. Robertson's team. He he, he signed. No no. no, no, he's in Sheleftia. Pardon me. He's I'm in Sheleftia. You're thinking, thinking of Berglund. Berglund. Sorry, so, my bad. So Sheleftia has lost Berglund and uh, Jonathan Pudas, um, mm -hmm. who their top two defensemen. Mm -hmm. I would prefer, I'm hoping, like, if the, that he stays there, I think it would do him, probably do him well. Like, he only got 14 minutes a game. I'd like to see him get 18, 19 minutes a game there for a year, continuing to develop, to develop there. I don't think there's a rush with this player. Like, you know, and, and you know, he's, he's not, he's, he, the interesting thing about Clefbaum is, so Nurse, this year averaged 1.17 uh, points per 60 even strength. Mm -hmm. Clefbaum, 0 0.82. Oh, yeah. Oh, now, there's a gap. So, you know, people who wonder about Nurse's puck moving, mm -hmm. well, he moved the puck well enough to, to put up some points pretty well. And I really like both these players. I, I think Oscar Clefbaum was, was really strong this year and took a huge stride forward defensively. And honestly, if I, I don't... With Nurse, like, I understand the frustration when he misses a pass and it happens. But well, he, he ices the puck. That's a, that's, that's a capital offense, David. When he fires a hard pass and misses everybody and it's icing. Like, some people take that personally, it seems like. I mean, my it, problem, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weakness. He ices it more than anyone else, but yeah. it's not, you know, <laughs> it's not the end I, of the world. If I have a worry about Nurse, it's, 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 like I, it's the same with Clefbaum. Sometimes their defensive play breaks down. For mm -hmm. the to win, they need both of these guys to become shut-down D-man in a top-four role. And Nurse struggles with that sometimes as well. He can he can lose. He, he wins physical battles, but he can sometimes be caught out of position on a play. And, um, 
he can go into defensive slumps. And they just need they need both of these players to bring their A game defensively. That's what my main concern with both of them. Because if Clefbaum's playing smart defensive hockey, which he which he's done in stretches, man, he is really strong defensively. And then Nurse is both that and physical. So that's what I'm hoping for both of these players. I'm not worried about their puck moving, Nurse skating it, Clefbaum passing it. They can both do that. I'm just they've got to shut down. They've got to be excellent defensively for the Oilers to advance. And I think they're probably both ready to do that. Um, this year again, they're both in the absolute. They're, they're in the prime years of their careers now as defenders, and they this is the moment. And mm-hmm. with Adam Larson healthy, I've got a good feeling, Bruce, about that aspect of the Oilers as well. They they can really shut down teams when their defense are playing heads up defensive hockey. So let's let's see that, you know, with McDavid and Drysaddle covering in the slot as as they've got to do as well. So I'm a stickler on that, I guess, like maybe Dave Tippett is. That's what he, of course, would focus on as well, I think, more than mm-hmm. as much as anything. Uh, Bouchard, Bruce, what do you think? Yeah, uh, well, so far, pretty much as advertised. You know, I mean, they've had, they drafted him two years ago and he finished out his junior career with a, you know, a, a cup of coffee in the NHL to start, which I'm not I guess that will help in the long term. I think they kind of got it out of order. Uh, They sent him back to junior. He went to the World Junior team. He ended the season in Bakersfield and was productive in the playoffs. So that was a real growth year for uh, Bouchard. And then this year, it was strictly all AHL all year long. And that, too, was a growth year for him. I mean, this is, you know, learning the ropes as a professional hockey player. And he's... um, uh, he was clearly better in the second half of the season than the first. And certainly his uh, his production numbers, which in his particular style of game, they are a measure of how he's playing. His productive numbers, uh, production numbers soared uh, in the second half, even as the team struggled. Uh, and he wasn't getting killed either. Like he, he held his own on the defensive side of, the, of things. And um, uh, good progress. Uh, I mean, for a first-round top 10 overall draft choice, you expect to have a, you know, a, a, a pretty good player. And we got a pretty good player, I think. But, uh, you know, the, the the story is yet to be written as to, as to how good. Very different style, though, from uh, from Philip Broberg. Yeah, if, if, if to, to make an Euler comparable, I think Justin Schultz is a very strong comparable for Evan Bouchard. And mm-hmm. unlike Justin Schultz, you know, Justin Schultz did play half a year in the AHL and he came into pro hockey a little older than Bouchard did. But you know what I like about the whole Bouchard situation is no one's kind of on the edge of their seat saying like, when is that Bouchard going to make the NHL? Like, Even for next year, I don't think he's on, people are thinking, oh, maybe he'll be in the NHL. And I think that's really healthy for the Oilers organization to have that with a top pick like him because rushing Bouchard to the NHL would be the biggest mistake you could make for this player terms of managing this player you could see that he needed that year in the AHL he had problems especially early on defensively he's got some some ways to go defensively in mm-hmm. terms of like he's never he's not going to be big Bobby Clobber on the ice he's never going to be that guy right but he could be a very sound fundamental defensive player who keeps his body between his man and the net consistently and doesn't get beat outside and makes the right reads in the, in the defensive zone and in the defensive slot covers his man he can be that guy, and we saw signs that he was becoming more of that player in uh, the AHL this year. His offensive production was was good, but not great. I'd say for what's expected of Evan Bouchard, I mean it was it was good, but it, you know higher end. You know, you, 
at the AHL level, if he was there this year, you'd almost hope for a point a game if he plays another year down there. He He's Justin Schultz. The main difference is he's got a much better shot than Justin Schultz ever had. And um, otherwise, they're very similar stylistically. They look a little... Some people are going to look at Evan Bouchard and always think, oh, he's lazy. Like, he doesn't... Because he's got that kind of skating style, you know, where it's a little... It's not churning and frenetic. It's more smooth. So, go ahead. Well, he's calm to a fault, Evan Bouchard. <laughs> yeah. Man, nothing seems to fluster the guy. And, I mean, that's a good thing. But there are times where maybe a little more panic wouldn't be... a go amiss you know in panic style situations but uh you know, he really does keep his cool out there and he's got an extremely low panic point from everything that i've seen and mostly that's a that's a positive attribute and you know it'd be nice to see him uh you know just just maybe tighten up a little bit on the defense be a little more you know aggressive on the on the man and you know the gap and so on but uh what is he now 20 years old yeah. So, you know, there's no show me a 20 year old defenseman who's a who's a fully developed product. It may be out there, but there's not very darn many of them. Yeah, it's it's exciting with the Oilers with with two prospects like that, and then the just the Oilers just their defensive depth chart is is mm-hmm. very deep right now because just behind them they have Dmitry Samarukov, mm-hmm. they've got. Uh, you know, Logason's still a prospect, and they have the two American, big, tough American, Kesselring and Kemp. They've mm-hmm. got Berglund, uh, mm-hmm. Niemelainen. There's a lot of players there, and uh, I can't remember the Oilers having that kind of defensive depth prospect, Bruce, ever. Well, we've ever. got, in our, in our top 20, actually in the top 17, nine of the 17 are defensemen, a majority of the top, you know, large number of prospects. I got nine guys waiting in the wings, and that does not include Ethan Bear or Caleb Jones, both of whom graduated from this list last year. So they've got youth already on the main squad, and this is why they can afford to take a little time with even top-notch product, uh, prospects like Bouchard and Broberg. Is there's not a gaping hole that they got to rush them into like they did with Justin Schultz, where you know <sighs> we haven't got enough guys in the top four. So guess what, Justin, you're it. And that's no longer the the prevailing situation in Edmonton that they can afford to take time and either break the guy in on a third pairing or give him an extra year in Sweden or Bakersfield, as the case may be. You know, let's uh, let's, uh, get them up when they're ready. Yeah, it's it's just great (laughs) compared to the past. And uh, we'll see. You know, like, so players taken in the top 10 at about that defenseman, you know, they have about, I think it's a, if I'm not mistaken, it's about a coin flip, whether they become a, an average to good NHL player or below, you know, below that. So it's a, it's usually a coin flip. Right now, though, it's looking, it's, well, you could still say it's a coin flip for, for both Bouchard and Broberg, I guess. That's, a, that's, a, that's probably fair. I mean, it, there's nothing, there's nothing scary so far that indicates um, well, that is getting worse. In mm-hmm. fact, it seems like it's getting probably it's going as planned at least for both guys to become top four NHL D men. They're both trending, still trending in that direction. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, and and I don't want to get caught up in the current excitement about Broberg at the training camp because that's that means nothing, almost nothing is what I'm going to say. 
I mean, we were all excited about Nail Yakupov, uh, his first training camps with the Oilers and his first cups of coffee. They, they, our first viewings of him, everyone was over the moon. So I, I just put that in this. I put that in that same category. Maybe it means something. Maybe it doesn't. So it's nice to think about and dream about, but it's not. You, you can't take that to the bank. Yeah, it sure would be nice if we could uh, find a little seat in the corners and uh, watch some of these training camp uh, um, um, workouts. Ourselves. I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, in the past, I've personally made a point of every training camp, every rookie camp, getting down and getting my butt in one of those seats, you know, in, uh, in the downtown community arena or where, where have you, and just watching and and that unfortunately is just not an option in the current environment so a lot of we just have to take the word of what what we hear and and i mean i'd rather hear good things than not i mean philip broberg is wowing people hey that's great news but you have to put it in the context of well it's a you know july training camp in a very unusual season and he came in here wanting to impress people and he's doing it which is you know really all you can ask for and I can't remember who said this, but one of the commentators was watching Ryan McLeod and then suggesting he was going to do better scoring at, at the NHL level than mm-hmm. at the uh, junior or AHL level. And, and uh, I think that's like, I'm not going to take literally that literally that there was going to be higher points per game. Maybe that's what they, maybe that's what the comment meant. But I, I think they just, they think they see some offensive, lots of offensive potential for Ryan McLeod. But my proviso on that is these camp situations, which I, I think if you've got some speed and skill, that's what's that can really stand out. Just right. jump out at you because we've seen Ryan McLeod in 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 four on four games or whatever it is in right. rookie camp. It just it's just this rocket, this huge rocket ship blasting down the ice, and you think, oh my god, what a hockey player! But right. Ryan McLeod kind of you know he was kind of iffy, kind of struggled at the AHL level. You know, like you know he was he was good. He, he had a good rookie, okay rookie year, but mm-hmm. nothing to indicate he's going to be a strong offensive player at the NHL level. Nothing. From from that first AHL season, it could still happen. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it wasn't there uh, that first year. So we'll see. Well, I mean, you think Ryan McLeod, what we're seeing of Ryan McLeod in camp as he, uh, well, what we're not seeing, but what we're hearing about Ryan McLeod in camp as he roars down the ice one-on-one with Darnell Nurse or Adam Larson, that he's seeing the same kind of defending that he would be doing in a game situation. I mean, the knock on McLeod is he's not necessarily willing to to uh, take the puck hard to the net to go to the dirty areas, as some people say. And it's a lot; those dirty areas are a lot cleaner in, uh, in exhibition and, and camp and practice situations than they are in anything resembling game. Uh, that said, I mean, to me, if you made the comment that Ryan McLeod might outscore his NHL equivalency when he gets to the NHL, yes. that those are going to low ball where yeah. he's actually going to be, I think that there's a there's a pretty good case that that, that certainly could be true. And, and I think that's probably, I'm just, I can't get in the, the head. I, I can't even remember who wrote the tweet, but I think maybe that's what they meant. So let's just, let's just, you know, and I think, I think. What you're suggesting is Larson and Nurse are playing at kind of 80%. And the 20% oh, they're that's not going to put them through the boards, are they? Yeah. The 20% is the missing. It's missing <laughs> is that 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 I'm going to put you through the boards 20%. Right. And, but that's the 20% that makes all the difference, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Adam Larson, you try going around Adam Larson in a game in the NHL, <laughs> you are going to pay a 
freaking price. Uh-huh. I'm, you know, I'm really excited about Adam Larson this this playoffs Bruce because the way he played in the final six two months to six weeks of the season, that was an Adam Larson that 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 we had been everyone had been hoping to see, well since his great performance in the 2017 playoffs, frankly, mm-hmm. and if he can play like that, I mean that is that is the prototypical NHL shutdown D man that this team needs to, to do well in the playoffs. And if he can play that way, um, that's going to be, obviously that's going to be huge for the Edmonton Oilers. And I, and I think he might, I think he's, he's healthy. He looks like he's good to go. So that'd be, I'm, that's, that could be exciting. Yeah. He can put Patrick Kane through the boards and you won't even think twice about it. Right. So yeah. anyway, that's, uh, that's, that's, you know, the element that's, that's missing. So anytime you hear the training camp uh, uh, hype about this or that, you know, you got to remember, this isn't hockey. This is, you know, training. And I, I seen her, yeah. I seem to recall some training camp hype about like, remember Braden Christopher, like, you know, there was a massive amount of excitement all of a sudden. And so th- these, this kind of, uh, exuberance, irrational exuberance can come out in, in, in these moments. So we've seen it before. I remember Mark Habshaw, never mind Braden and Christopher. <laughs> There's a long history of, of guys getting hyped in training camp and and when push came to shot, he was, he was a player, but he, that, that he just didn't live up to some of the sort of ridiculous early expectations. And yeah. So you got to temper well, those, that's all. Mark Hapscheid was was a draft pick still in that era when we were expecting every Edmonton Oilers uh, fourth-round draft pick to transform mm-hmm. into a Hall of Fame hockey player. Uh, so there was a bit of that going on as well with uh, with Hapscheid, kind of that unreal expectation that Barry Fraser had set in his mm-hmm. first year, first five years as an NHL draftmeister, unparalleled success, followed by 15 years of absolute and utter mediocrity in the same role. So that's how it shakes out sometimes. Let's just hope that the new guys draft and uh, for the Oilers get on a hot streak here because that's what a franchise needs. And that's what they had. I think, frankly, under Peter Shirelli, the, 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 the hot streak that they had under Shirelli, mm-hmm. aside from Puglia-Yarvi, perhaps, was, was real and was significant. And I guess the jury's still out if you want to be charitable on Jesse Puglia-Yarvi as well. So we'll see how that turns out. But, man, the Oilers... Drafted some really, really good hockey players in 2015 those 2015 and 2017 were both very good drafts by the owners. Yeah, and the other ones could still pan out. We yeah. don't know, right? Like, yeah. there could be some, like, we're McLeod, Maximov, Lavoie, Samarukov. These are all unknowns. Bouchard. Yeah, yeah so we'll, we'll find out. But Yamamoto, Yamamoto pa- uh, panning out, to me, makes me comfortable in saying, they had some guys who knew what they were doing and they got good. They were good and they got lucky and the right players fell to them and they had some real success in those draft years. So Bruce, maybe we should leave it there. Any other thoughts? Um, yeah, no, I'm, I think I'm good. And I think we kind of cover the waterfront. All righty. Big week coming up, heading into uh, a week Tuesday, the Oilers' first exhibition game against the Calgary Flames. So Only exhibition game will be against the Calgary Flames. So um, the, the Giordano factor is the, the only thing that's got me concerned about that game. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> so 
the NHL wanted to promote rivalries for the exhibition season. Well, maybe they should have thought about that when they set up their playoff structure and kept to the divisional format that they originally had. <laughs> where rivalries are built in, hardwired. That was the whole reason for doing the divisional structure. Hey, they went in another direction, so all I can do is whine and bitch about it. Who would the Oilers <laughs> have played, Bruce, if they had gone? Do you they have- would have had a bye, David. Because they were in second place in the Pacific. This is what I've been kind of railing about the whole time. Like they were in position of the eight teams that would have had a home ice advantage. The way when the standing stopped, uh, seven of them got a bye, and the eighth is the Edmonton Oilers. All right. Well, that's a good point. I'll. I would have taken that bye at this point. I would have taken that bye. I would have taken that bye. Yep. See how it goes. All right. (laughs) Thanks for talking, Bruce. Thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast.